Thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast brought to you by a student staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host Kyra and for this episode I'll be in conversation with Samir Panja, an architect and assistant head of the School of Architecture at our university. Samir's research largely focuses on the relationships between architecture and identity to examine questions relating to design, representation and power. In this interview, we delve into Samir's academic journey, his role as Director of International and Strategic Lead for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, and how we can begin to decolonise architecture curricula. So we usually start things off with our guests telling us just a little bit about themselves. So first things first, where are you from? So, you know, I was born in India, uh, actually, and I uh, came to the country as as a child. Uh, and grew up in Lewisham, South East London. Um, and so I'm actually still in South East London today. And how would you describe your upbringing in terms of how race was kind of seen and felt in your household? It's kind of an, an interesting one. I mean, kind of race, culture, ethnicity, religion, all kind of were interwoven in terms of my experience growing up. Um, you know, my parents, my inherited religion is is uh, Hinduism. Kind of, I'm a, I'm a Hindu, um, and the so at home uh, with my parents, it was very kind of conservative. You know, very kind of um, um, adherent to our inherited culture. But of course, I was in London, uh, so outside the home, it was very mixed. Um, uh, I went to a school that was quite multicultural, a primary school, uh, which was a, a fas- fantastic way to start. Um, uh, one's education Uh, but Lewisham at the time was interesting in the 70s and early 80s because it was um, a place where the National Front used to march a lot and were really really active Um, and there were loads of demonstrations um, on the streets um, by the marches by the National Front uh, but also counter demonstrations and clashes and things were quite tense so kind of anti-racist groups um, on the streets so my memories were really kind of marked by uh, racial tension on one hand and personally a really multicultural experience on the other. So when did you kind of start to develop an interest in architecture like what inspired that? That's kind of interesting Kyra I don't think there was anything that inspired it you know growing (laughs) up as, as as a child as a son of Indian parents who um came to the country in the 60s to to build a better life uh, for their children as lots of um, uh, parents did of that generation from kind of you know the Asian subcontinent the former commonwealth countries as well Um, uh, they came to build what they thought was a better life for us Uh, and so one of the big things two big targets Indian parents had one get your children married off um, a decent age, yeah, uh, not too early, but definitely not too late. Um, and two, uh, ensure that they get educated and end up in a in a good profession. And the classic thing that parents of my generation wanted their kids to become uh, was either a doctor or a dentist or um, uh, perhaps a lawyer or, funnily enough, an engineer. So all those things were classed as a respectable were respectable professions. Now, I wasn't clever enough to be any of those things, um, uh, but I think they had their eye on medicine for me, but I definitely am not. I'm a doctor. 
having up. And in the end, I thought, actually, what can I do? There was no passion or interest. But at the time that I had to make my decision in terms of kind of, you know, GCSEs, A-levels, I thought, geez, what can I do um, that kind of satisfies that kind of respectable thing? You know, I'm not particularly scientific. I'm kind of, I was kind of interested in art. Um, and architecture seems to seem to bring both of those things together. So science and art. And so for me, it was a pragmatic choice. It was like, actually, nothing else to do. I'm going to go for it. But it ended up being a, a, a good choice for me, really. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And now you're the assistant head of the School of Architecture at Westminster, which is amazing. Is there anything interesting that you can tell us about the architectural history of Westminster, perhaps in relation to like colonialism or any like British university? Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of an interesting question. I mean, there's two two things, I guess. One, a personal, actually just to take a step back, it might be relevant here, a kind of personal reflection really on architectural education when I started it. Mm. I mean, I did my undergraduate degree uh, at Dundee University. Uh, up in Scotland um, and I went again from Lewisham which was very multicultural to Dundee which wasn't. Uh, I remember arriving on my first day in the studios um, and uh, the way the studio architectural studios uh, in Dundee are arranged is that you know every year five years of uh, student groups are all in one massive space, one big space. So you start in first year and you can look all the way to fifth year and it's one kind of mega space. And when I was there, it wasn't broken down or divided, it was just a huge space. And I remember on my first day there, I walked in and I stood in my, at my first year desk and looked out across the five years. And it was just this sea of um, kind of monoculturalism. I mean, it was all white. And I thought, this is really odd. There are no people like me here. Um, eventually, I think there was one other Indian person in the five years that I found. Um, no black students. There were a few Chinese and a few Korean exchange students in the upper years. But that was it. So for me, it was a bit of a culture shock. But, but what I didn't realise at the time is that um, that was probably a sign of how accessible or inaccessible uh, not only architecture education is, but higher education, uh, uh, which is quite interesting. But but really, fast forwarding to today, incidentally, I'm I got appointed as an external examiner at Dundee now. So uh, going back to the place where I I had that kind of experience at first, it's going to be interesting just to see how things have changed. You know, it's, yeah, is it more diverse? Has architecture become more accessible in that school? Um, so that's going to be interesting but you know fast forwarding to today and architectural education probably you were asking about Westminster in particular yeah, yeah. or like London universities in general but yeah Westminster I mean, London universities are, I think are generally fantastic uh, um, most of them are really quite diverse um, I think you know Westminster is no exception. I think as a school, we're probably one of the most diverse schools uh, in the country. And I think I suspect, you know, if you look at the data, probably globally we're quite we're one of the most diverse. And I think nationally across schools of architecture in the over the whole country, you know, if you look at the statistics, um, the average um, percent of BAME students in 
on undergraduate architecture courses is about five or six percent nationally. For us, it's it's around sixty percent, uh, uh, and so we're hugely diverse, uh, and I think that's a fantastic thing. Um, one of the reasons for that is that we're in London, uh, and a lot of our students commute. You know, they're commuter students. You know, um, so so on that side of things it's really positive, you know, we are really very much a London school, you know, multicultural, uh, quite cosmopolitan. There's also an international dimension. Some of our students are from overseas. Um, so that's all good. Um, but what I can see is that actually what we need to work on is how we respond to those students. Um, any of the things that we still teach in terms of the curriculum is not as diverse as the students that we're, we're teaching. Um, so that leads to a number of things, you know, students quite often uh, feel disengaged with what they're being taught. Uh, they don't necessarily see themselves in what they're being taught. You know, they don't see themselves reflected in the environment, uh, which leads to um, feeling a bit disenfranchised, a bit disconnected um, from what is being taught as the legitimate or you know authorized um, version of architectural history or um, theory. Um, so we've got to work harder on on diversifying the curriculum. Um, but I think we're doing that. I think we're doing some good. A long way to go. I mean, my personal my personal time at Westminster began um, because I co-wrote a master's course in architecture that specialised in race um, and ethnicity and globalisation. Um, and Westminster uh, welcomed it, they supported it, uh, the school, and it, it, it's been running now for nearly a decade and a half um, and has produced some really good work and thinking on those kind of themes. Um, students from all over the world have engaged with the course over the years. Um, so my own personal experience is actually anything to do with um, race, identity and architecture has been supported in the school. But a lot of the issues are deeper, Kyra, they're structural, they're systemic, takes time. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing to hear that it's been running for so long and you've got such a positive response to it as well. It's amazing. But just talking about kind of your recent work as well, you touched upon how you, you're kind of concerned with the relationship between architecture and identity and how you're kind of heavily influenced by, I guess, like post-colonial theory, mm. uh, critical race theory. What made you want to explore architectural nationalism and like, why is that important for us to understand? Yeah, I think broadly, or the, the thing that links all of the, those themes that you just mentioned, Kyra, is the question of identity. Uh, for me, I guess it's a really, it's a personal thing, but it's also a political thing. So personally, you know, the, the, the brief experience that I mapped out earlier in terms of not recognising others like myself within architectural education sparked a bit of the interest in that question of, you know, who's represented in the built environment, who designs the built environment, who has uh, decision-making powers, uh, in the construction and shaping of our cities. All those big questions really begins 
with these kind of cultural ones and these kind of questions of education and access and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's what really sparked um, sparked my interest, really. Uh, so again, I co-wrote that course and got it off the ground. And also at the time, you know, I was active in groups like the Society of Black Architects who were campaigning in the 90s, uh, chairing a group called Architects for Change at the Royal Institute of British Architects, which were looking to increase awareness and access into education for non-represented groups, underrepresented groups. But for, for me, what I realised after years of running that course and doing this campaigning stuff is that um, and this re really was brought into sharp relief after the murder of George Floyd, was that nothing much has changed. You know, after nearly two decades of campaigning and activism, uh, with others, of course, across the profession, right? Um, my, in my own head, uh, Kyra, I was thinking that progress is being made. I thought, this is fantastic that the profession is setting up uh, doing stuff, you know, it's all got all these programs in, in various universities running, really interrogating this stuff. So I kind of thought the progress was being made. Um, but then after the murder of George Floyd, as, as usually happens, society or the profession or the higher education sector suddenly started become, you know, being interested, uh, conscience was provoked. And then all these statistics and data was, was, was brought out that showed us that actually progress is not as is not as kind of you know as um, as much as we'd like to think it was you know and at, at that point so after the last kind of year and a half my my thinking is that actually we've got to really interrogate the structures the systems the content of what what's being taught and we've got to change it at a more profound level so mm. you know, all these terms like decolonizing uh, the curriculum actually what we need to do is decolonize universities we need to decolonize higher education and we need to decolonize society can't just be one course yeah um, absolutely I mean it's one thing to kind of like decolonize architecture as a discipline which we'll talk about later but do you think it's possible to actually decolonize the built environment that we live in yeah, it's kind of, it's a really, really good question. Uh, and it's a really complex uh, one because the, the forces that shape the production of the built environment are multidirectional and they're so complex. So it's not just about architects designing buildings. Um, it's to do with government policy. It's to do with cultural understanding and awareness. It's to do with how and to what extent communities are engaged in the decision-making process. It's also to do with the conceptual vocabulary that architects use, the language that they use, the way in which they think. Um, you, you know, architects by definition have to remain optimistic. You know, we construct, we build things. And so it has to be forward-looking. It has to be in a sense, and I don't make, mean it to sound grand, but it has to, be visionary. We have to think about new possibilities and how the world could be. So on that sense, we have to remain optimistic, but it does need massive buy-in from all the sectors, a coordinated approach to solving that problem, uh, which is why I think our school's in an interesting position to do that, because you know we are a school that, that's interdisciplinary. It's not just about architecture. 
you know, it's about planning, it's about interiors, it's about transport infrastructure, it's even about tourism. Um, we deal with research that looks not only into design, but also policy, um, uh, as well as theory. So I think the future, the answer will come from a future that's much more interdisciplinary and collaborative, yeah. speaking to each other about collectively about what the answers are. I mean, one of the biggest struggles I think at the moment is to deal with the terms of engagement. So for example, EDI, you know, what does that, what do these terms really even mean? Mm. Um, equality, for example, just to take the word equality, if you look at the way that's defined legally in terms of, uh, you know, providing equality of opportunity, equality of treatment and equality of outcome, that's all about giving everybody the same thing, you know, treating everybody equally. And on the surface, that's quite an, an honourable endeavour, um, but really goes against the idea of diversity. You know, I'm much more interested in equity, which is about giving people what they want and responding to uh, the needs of individuals or individual student groups, which are really quite different. Uh, and so that's much more nuanced, you know, um, and likewise, the other terms, you know, um, diversity and inclusion, they're, they're, we should be interrogating these terms. Are, the, are they the right terms in the way that they frame the way we think about the problem? Or are they terms that are dreamed up by the government or the higher education sector to um, frame the problem in a particular way? Yeah. yeah. And we aren't critical in academia, then I don't know where the criticality is going to come from. We have to really be interrogating these terms and saying, actually, they're not right, uh, or they could work better in, in, in a number of different ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And just um, going back to what you said about kind of cultural understanding of architecture and things like that, I'm aware that UCL has recently tried to kind of confront their problematic history with eugenics by creating like a committee dedicated towards like building names and renaming them what do you think of that like do you think changing a building's name can erase like the distant past associated with it yeah I mean I, I have uh, kind of you know obviously heard of the UCL um issue uh, and it and it and it's worth worth talking about that I mean it has a past that it needs to overcome uh, and as you said you know as we know it deals with eugenics, uh, which was obviously a kind of um, a dangerous and kind of insidious ideology, and we all know what it what it led to. I do know UCL are taking steps to deal with that, as you said, um, and there are a number of individuals who are doing a lot of good work, good positive work in that area. But on, on the issue of names, uh, they do obviously carry meaning uh, and can symbolise and reinforce particular uh, values. Um, so I think it's a good thing, you know, to remove a name that recalls um, a period, let's say, of white supremacy or a racist past. I mean, removing those names is definitely a start. Um, replacing questionable names of buildings with names which express um, anti-racist values would be even better. Uh, there's also, I guess, the question of who is involved in the renaming or who has the right to to rename uh, so those are all questions we need to think about but but obviously renaming a building doesn't 
rewrite history. Uh, and it's certainly not a solution to the problems that we face in academia. Um, as I think I mentioned earlier, I mean, we need to rethink uh, more fundamentally our structures, systems and frameworks. Um, the legacy of structural inequity has led to kind of deeply embedded uh, assumptions, biases, systems of privilege. So in addition to creating a new culture, we also need to, at the same time, unlearn an old one. And that's challenging to, to many people and even threatening to some. Um, so I guess in sort of renaming buildings is positive, but it's only one quite symbolic part of the solution. Uh, and it doesn't really on its own deal with the complexities that we face. And lastly, for people who want to start looking into the colonial history of the built environment, specifically their university, where can they begin to kind of find information on that? Like who else is talking about this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are loads, loads of books, loads of articles written about colonial history and, and the relationship between um, col colonialism and higher education, particularly in this country for obvious uh, reasons. Um, I think it's quite interesting to look at our own, having mentioned UCL, it's quite interesting to look at our own university. I mean, there is a, um, for anyone that's interested in finding out about our own past as, a, as an institution, there is a, a history of University of Westminster book series, which is quite interesting. And I think there are four or five, I can't actually, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's four or five books in the series. There's one in particular uh, that, that's quite interesting for me. It's called Educating for Professional Life. And it's kind of interesting for two reasons. I mean, firstly, it's, it deals with a period of history where the university um, changed, or, well, the first 25 years of its history as a university. So when it switched from a, being a polytechnic to a university. Uh, and, it, and it's a history of that 20, first 25 years. And it's kind of interesting for me for two reasons. The first reason is completely superficial. It's because if you flick through the book, you see uh, images of the various buildings on our, uh, of our sites. Uh, and the city, uh, London, is constantly in the background. So it's almost like architecture and the city in that book are um, key characters uh, and a key part of the narrative it's always there uh, so I really quite like that I mean the second reason probably a bit more significant for this chat is that in that 25 years the higher education in the UK transformed really radically it was a period of radical transformation uh, and what what was interesting is that the book shows the way in which Westminster adapted to that transformation, adapted and responded to changes in society over that 25 years. Um, so it responded really well. Uh, and what that tells me is um, that the university can, if it has to, adapt and transform in response to changing external social uh, contexts and needs. Um, so for me here today, that gives me at least some hope that, you know, um, that we can, well, some hope for the period we're entering now in terms of the aspiration to create a kind of truly anti-racist institution. And there are other books, so I, I should mention in terms of architecture, again, loads and loads out there in terms of the history of colonial architecture. Um, 
But what what people will find when they dig around is that many of the history books are really looking at colonial and post-colonial architecture, uh, focusing mainly on questions of style and forms of expression, uh, and not so much in terms of relations of power or the uh, political forces that shape the production of the built environment. Um, but there are three three books I should quickly mention. Um, one is really one that's really well known to architects and architectural students for generations upon generation. It's a book that was written in, um, first written in 1880 something, 86, I think. And it's called um, A History of Architecture uh, by Bannister Fletcher. Um, and it's been updated over the years, um, uh, ever since then, but it, it's over time become really notorious um, for having a really, I guess, distorted colonial worldview. So it promoted a really Western bias uh, in, in how it considered, um, or what it considered to be architecture. Um, but the latest edition, which was published a couple of years ago uh, and was edited by uh, somebody called Murray Fraser, who's a former uh, colleague of mine, um, has done a lot of really good work to get rid of that bias. Uh, so it was retitled now. Now it's called A Global History of Architecture. It's been entirely rewritten uh, and it's now much more of a kind of objective overview um, of architecture. Uh, and what's interesting about it is that it, it consciously distanced itself from um, colonial kind of notions of otherness uh, and the way in which sometimes history writing is discriminatory or exclusionary. Um, so in, in a sense, it's a really symbolic moment in architectural discourse, you know, uh, for a book that was so, that's been so long part of the canon and the establishment, um, suddenly to actually say, hands up, now we've got to get rid of this bias and be much more inclusive. Um, there are a couple of other quick ones which are, I think, for me personally, uh, touchstones for me. And I think really anyone interested in race and architecture um, should look at these. The first one's called White Papers, Black Marks, and the subtitle is Architecture, Race, Culture. It's written by a, a friend and collaborator of mine um, called Leslie Locko. Uh, and it quite simply explores the way in which race is manifested in the built environment. Uh, and also looks or kind of interrogates the way in which that shapes people's understanding of place and space and where they belong and where they don't belong. And then the second one is a book called um, less well known than the other two, I have to say, but it's but but I think really valuable um, is called Postcolonial Spaces. Now, the word spaces in the title, the last S of spaces has brackets around it in the title not to be confused with another book called Postcolonial Spaces without brackets at the end, which is not the one I'm talking about. Uh, so Postcolonial uh, Spaces and the authors are, there's two editors actually, Gulsum Nalban Toglu and Wong Chong Tai. Uh, and that really is a book about looking at new languages um, for you know conceptual languages or design languages um, for rethinking architecture in a post-colonial context. Uh, so me really deals with the complexity of thinking through questions of race, identity, through design. Um, 
I think that I think that's it. There is actually one more that was really recently published. Haven't read it at all, but I should flag it up. It's called Race and Modern Architecture. I think published last year. Last year, I have a copy. I haven't read it yet, um, but reading descriptions, it sounds pretty comprehensive. So if students are really interested in the relationship with race and architecture, get hold of a copy. It sounds like it. It writes about how race permeates absolutely everything the entire history of architecture and our entire experience so i'm looking forward to reading that i mean what i would say finally to students who um i mean advice i guess to students uh because i'm hoping that some of them might listen uh, to these amazing podcasts that you're putting you're putting together um is the advice i would give is, is to question everything that they read regarding history, architectural history or any any history, and to remain critical. Um, I would say, yeah, question everything and don't just passively accept uh, a history that's presented to you. So look for things like hidden assumptions, inflated claims, bias, um, how particular perspectives are being foregrounded, uh, and look really at the stories being told to support them. So quite often you realize that storytelling in these history books is a really clever tactic that's used by writers to foreground certain histories, um, but then to leave others out. Yeah. Uh, so that's the only advice I would give really. back to our kind of discussion about EDI work in higher education you are the director of international strategic lead for equality diversity and inclusion what does that job involve like how does it differ to like a typical kind of director of EDI yeah 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 so the EDI thing is an interesting one I mean I you know I took on this role I'm a year into it now so it, it, it's all quite quite new um, well, a year old, it's not so new. Um, but but so the question, sorry, Kyrie, you're asking about how it, you know, what we do, what I do. Okay, so when I took it on, it was wide open. Um, I think the, again, as part of the response to um, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of uncomfortable questions that those, those events provoked, um, uh, I think the, you know, the university created a EDI committee um, and they created these roles. Um, so it's a proactive response, but the, the, the roles weren't very clearly defined when I started. Um, they are now just, um, and they're described quite clearly. Um, so it's very uh, open. So I thought, hey, we can do what we want. You know, what's, what's going on? I mean, so I spent last year Doing, you know, doing a number of things. Firstly, I thought actually, how are we going to respond? How are we going to diversify further um, the school? How are we going to address things like diversifying and decolonizing the curriculum? What does that mean to us as a discipline? Um, uh, and what I realized is that there'll be, there's been so much work done on this, you know, real, real activity um, that I need to fully understand. So basically I talked to loads of people early on, um, across the school, across the college, across the university, um, 
students included uh, as critical in that consultation, um, also to vice chancellors. Um, and um, that gave me a real insight into what the key issues were, what the challenges were, uh, and some of the really innovative stuff people were thinking about uh, on how to respond to the challenges. So that was that was one of the first things I engaged with. Uh, and then I thought, actually, in my discussions with, uh, you know, colleagues, um, generally awareness varied of the problem and the challenge. Um, EDI literacy varied and understanding of the um, context kind of varied levels of understanding. So I began the year also with arranging some workshops um, on um, diversity, the awarding gap, which is the big focus at the moment, quite rightly. Um, uh, and uh, that was really well intended. You know, the um, uh, colleagues in the school really engaged fully with the workshops that we organised to interrogate those things and discuss them. So um, we that was the second thing, in addition to consultation, really raising awareness. And then we got a lot of resources together, you know, you know the various toolkits that university have provided, but also reading lists and case studies of other universities that are doing more good work. So I thought that's the kind of natural next step is to disseminate all of that stuff across the school. So not only have we raised awareness, um, but we are now giving colleagues the tools to help them respond at a course level. Um, uh, so that was really kind of scene setting groundwork that we did. And then the final thing was to develop a longer term strategy. Uh, so I developed an equity plan um, and, and the idea of launching a observatory uh, in the school, which is EDI related, um, that essentially is outward looking and inward looking, you know, identifying what's happening out there in the sector, in society in relation to EDI. Um, but also, you know, looking at data, um, making sure that, you know, we're closing awarding gaps, not letting other gaps emerge. Um, uh, and uh, devising projects, you know, big projects. We've got, we've got projects we're applying for funding for that will launch this year. Uh, one of them is, a, is an online resource, uh, which will be um, accommodating all of the material, um, uh, case studies, uh, past student work, work from practice that students and staff can access really easily uh, to inform their own work. Um, and we are launching also an equity forum, which will oversee the work of that observatory. Um, and really it's a kind of longer term plan that we have in mind that is about cultural, cultural change uh, and structural change. So uh, no short term quick fixes. It's not gonna happen overnight. It has to be kind of looking at five yearly plans for this stuff. Yeah. No, that's amazing. It's, it makes me happy to hear like just, just the, all the work that's going on. And we also kind of have our own reading list and we have their kind of discipline focused. And I think we probably had some, we have an architecture one as well. So I think it's nice to hear that different kind of projects and different kind of communities in the university are also kind of coming together to work on this. Going back to your kind of uh, point on having like an interdisciplinary kind of approach, which is, yeah, it's really great to hear. Absolutely. During my time in this role, actually, like I think I've learned, I've come across some criticisms of EDI work and they often argue that, you know, it's more about diversifying than, I guess, equality or equity and inclusion. 
what do you think of this and do you kind of see that yourself in some kind of EDI programs yeah in terms of the limitations of um mm. yeah so yeah that's interesting I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the difference between equality and equity yeah and what an effective way to frame what we're doing would be uh, and for me it's equity not equality uh, mm. uh, diversity is a term that people can hide behind you know it's a kind of term that you can just say okay wow we've got a diverse student body so actually that's progress and the job's done isn't it great uh, but actually no that's where the job often just begins you know the um, you know you have a diverse student body what you know how are they progressing what do they achieve are we failing them having got them in or is it a cynical thing about recruitment and um uh you know um presentational issues you know look look how diverse we are we've got to be serving those students in the right way so in that sense yeah i do think there's a huge amount of work to do to to rethink what we mean by these terms um for sure yeah. um i don't know if that answers your your question no absolutely yeah it does thank you and my next one is a bit of like a two-part question. So do you think involvement in EDI should be compulsory for all lectures and teaching staff? And how do we ensure that that involvement is done effectively? So for example, without losing touch of why this work is important and who it's important to, and without being kind of tokenistic and about ticking boxes, like you said. It's a bit of a long question, so I can repeat it yeah. if you like. <laughs> yeah, no, I, think, I think the answer to the first part is yes. We've got to engage everybody in EDI related questions, you know, I mean, for example, there was a staff module online module on unconscious bias um, that that was a kind of optional module um, for colleagues to take, you know, um, and we, we said for our school, everybody has to do it. Everybody has to do that module on, uh, on unconscious bias because it's just so important, you know, and if we, we can kid ourselves, uh, and uh, often we do kid ourselves to think actually, no, we, we can't be biased, you know, you know, unconsciously or not, we're not biased, we're, we're good people, we're ethical, we're, 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 we're academics, for God's sake, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, ethics is very much part of what we're interested in. But actually, we're all bias in some way unconsciously I did the module myself uh, and it was really revealing you know it really uh, made me sit up and pay attention to the ways I think about others the kind of um, the way in which society conditions us to think about others in particular ways uh, and I think everybody has to do it uh, and likewise um, you know with 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 curriculum design uh, what we teach does it reflect contemporary society as diverse as it is? Does it reflect the fact that we live in a globalized world and we are constantly coming into touch with others? Um, I don't, I'm not sure if it does. So I think that actually everything from individual staff training all the way to course design, um, in addition to other things like, you know, how diverse our staff body is, how many role models we have in the environment, how we're mentoring students who might be having difficulties. It's complex and it's layered, but everybody has to get involved. It's not like, I mean, one of the things about the EDI role, uh, Kyra, that you asked about earlier, is the thing I experienced in the earlier months of taking it on is as soon as it appeared, that EDI role, somehow, 
people thought that um, responsibility for dealing with EDI issues became atomized in that one role, i.e. me. Oh, if it's an EDI issue, Samir will deal with it. If it's an EDI-related question, he'll be able to answer it. But actually, it's got to be the opposite of that. You know, I think a key part of my role is ensuring that there's collective responsibility, uh, knowing that um, colleagues need support in order to fulfil that responsibility, um, because uh, this stuff is complicated. It's not easy. And the reason why progress hasn't been made, I think, uh, in the past, you know, because, you know, people have been championing these causes for many, many, many decades, um, is because uh, we don't understand fully that the complexity of the issues and the challenges are there and will take time to engage. And we have to support each other in order to do that, not just campaign. Um, and say that this is wrong. We have to really, we have to be supportive as well. Help others to rise to the challenge. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and I'm happy you've said that as well because I think with EDI work and like even sometimes decolonial work in higher education, like the burden often gets put on kind of you know the academics of color, students of color, and things like that. But this is very much a job for everybody like it's we should all hold ourselves accountable we should all kind of be responsible for kind of wanting to encourage change 100 and so. you're you're 100 right it's that question of you know you put the burden on um you know BAME staff members to to do this uh it's the emotional i think that the term is emotional labor that it takes to do yeah. i mean that you know my going back to my god i don't want to keep turning turning it around back to me but you know, in the 1970s and early 80s, Lewisham, growing up as a kid, I used to get beaten up quite regularly as a, you know, uh, uh, by people who were racist um, uh, and experienced that kind of sense of uh, discrimination and attack and isolation. In the end, you have to get on with it. But, you know, and then to then be told, you know, when you take on roles like this, that actually your job is to solve the problem, you know. Mm. Actually, there's just something really profoundly wrong with that. Uh, and that's not, uh, we, we as a school, that's not how we're seeing it at all. I mean, the head of school, colleagues that are really active in this as well, uh, whether it's to do with um, uh, gender, whether it's to do with um, uh, LGBTQ+, whether it's to do with disability, um, sexuality, whatever the... Uh, Group, you know, underrepresented group um, that we're talking about is they're all interconnected. There's all in, intersectionality runs through it all. Um, uh, nobody's thinking that it's you know it's up to one person or one group to solve it. It must mm. be a collective collective endeavor. And in that sense, that's the exciting thing about it for me. Um, and in many senses, I think we do need to, as well as looking back and I'm tangling the history of all of this stuff, in addition to decolonizing and, and addressing questions of social justice and epistemic injustice, we also need to look forward, you know. Yeah. Uh, we also need to be futures orientated. And, and for me, the exciting thing is, is it's, you know, the future could be profoundly intercultural. You know, we don't need to pretend that we're all the same. We don't need to, on the other hand, force people to um, forget about who they are uh, and um, 
or in a phony way celebrate difference um it's much more complicated it's profoundly incultural it's messy you know we all i'm i'm um you know my i've got i'm brown uh, i'm indian but i'm also really very much a londoner um uh, i am from a working class family um uh, and i have many many layers to my identity you know uh, and a lot of those are in conflict you know a lot of them don't sit alongside each other very well it's very messy identity. Yeah. and actually each individual cannot be reduced to a a category an ethnic category or any other category we're all highly complex so i think we need to realize that and tease it out and actually enjoy the messiness of all of that yeah. uh, and 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 the the enjoyment or the joy that we can get out of that is partly facilitated by increasing sensitivity and, and yeah. tolerance and and a politics of respect you know uh, and then you know instead of fear you know instead of fearing others you know it's about respect and um I, I think actually then the future of our school can be again profoundly intercultural as opposed to divisive you know and I wanted to talk about decolonizing architecture curricula as well. Do you think decolonized and anti-racist courses can be created in our existing institutions or do we need new separate institutions that create kind of diversified and inclusive courses from the start? I know you're a part of the academic advisory um, board for the African Futures Institute, but what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting because that that institute is doing really sees its position as doing exactly as you described in terms of new institutions with new values, new ways of doing things, uh, and addressing very real and urgent problems and issues. Um, I think you can do both. I think you can you can deal with existing structures, existing systems, existing curriculum and content um, as well. You can do both. You can start with new institutions or you can recalibrate uh, existing uh, systems. With the existing uh, ones, of course, there's a lot of untangling to do. There's a lot of knotted, knotted kind of um, uh, embedded ways of thinking and doing things. Uh, and it's a huge challenge to untangle all of those. Um, but some of the things that we're doing now, raising awareness, raising consciousness about the issues. I mean, for example, in our school, what we did intentionally is, you know, Kyra, you get individual courses. Every now and again, they have to get go through a revalidation process, yeah. which, which uh, you know, it could be every four to six years. Um, courses have to go through some scrutiny to see how they've performed um, and um, whether or not what they're doing is still current, uh, still appropriate, uh, still checking lots of quality boxes to see if we're, you know, heading in the right direction. Asking questions about what need, needs to change. So we had a number of different courses in the school um, due for revalidation spread across the next few years. And what we've done is we've deliberately delayed some and brought forward others to synchronise that revalidation process. Uh, and what that means is now we're in, a, we're in an amazing position to look across many of the courses in our school at the same time intensively so that we can share experiences, share reflection, share best practice, 
share forward planning uh, and ideas. Um, so we get a lot of economy out of it, but we also get a chance to talk about things like EDI alongside other important things like climate change, sustainability. Um, so what we can do is affect change across the majority of courses in the school um, and get use the time and space that the revalidation process allows us to reflect really rigorously about what we're doing, as opposed to in a patchy way, you know, yeah. here, there, across. So, so it's a real opportunity. So that's an example of how we've adjusted in order to maximise impact on the school, especially with things like EDI, you know. Um, we had an away day last, not last week, the week before last, um, where all of the course leaders, module leaders and key people came together to, to talk. They all presented ideas about their courses. They were asked to respond to questions of EDI and we're going to keep doing that through the validation process. So, so hopefully we'll come out the other end at the end of this academic year with uh, a really reinvigorated uh, set of courses which will be um, impactful on the school as a whole and things like EDI will have been really interrogated and embedded into courses and so that's a really big aim so again you can do you can do it with existing you know, institutions but I'm not pretending it's going to be a, a quick fix you know mm. yeah you need yeah. you need the attitudinal changes to go along with the content changes and the yeah. structural changes you need people's attitudes to be aligned with the values of those so that's kind of thinking I guess on the grand scheme of things like in terms of like courses in general but in the classroom itself what do you feel like lecturers can do to kind of decolonize their pedagogy and kind of their practice yeah yeah you know one of the things I picked up is another excellent question see I need to take your questions and just ask others <laughs> they're really, really good uh, good question I mean the, the the thing that I picked up from that away day um, was that there was a lot of thinking about curricula, which is to do with course content, you know, what's being taught. And in effect, that's the most straightforward and easy thing. You know, reading lists are really easy to um, diversify. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what we teach, one can adjust those really easily. What we need to talk more about is pedagogy, as you said. And in the classroom, or in the studio, so architecture's signature pedagogy is studio teaching, you know, it's at the centre of what we do, um, design studio. Um, what I think we need to do is um, break down hierarchies between uh, teacher and uh, student. I think we need to listen more. And when I say listen, I don't, I don't think, I don't mean just kind of uh, listening to presentations by students or, you know, having chats. I mean, really seriously listen as a practice, you know, as, as a practice we try to perfect, we do it again and again. Try to hear what our students want, um, try to respond, leave space in the curriculum to respond to specific cohorts and through listening, um, try to facilitate students leading at least in part their own education really understanding now that's not easy because academics colleagues are under huge pressure 
you know, lots of things to do. And it seems like more and more is piled on their shoulders. But through clever rethinking of the way we use, you know, course timetables, how we spend contact time in the classroom, we can build in, in a really intelligent ways, opportunities early on uh, in the academic year to listen to students uh, and to really understand how we can take on board their experiences, how we can harness their experiences and how we can use that to adjust what we do in the academic year. Um, I started, when we started speaking, Kyra, you know, I mentioned how diverse our student body is, generally speaking. That's an asset. You know, that's a snapshot of a cosmopolitan, multicultural, global society uh, in a place like London, which is really, really unique. You know, I only have to go outside the M25 of Cairo to a small village, you know, um, uh, you know, north of the M25 and, and, and you know, people start looking at me. You know, I feel suddenly like I did when I was a kid. You know, it's very strange to see a person of colour outside the M25. But, but in the school, we are really, really, the makeup of our demographic is really global, really mixed, really diverse. That's an asset. And, and what we need to do is understand the lived experiences of those students and somehow use that to inform what we teach, how we teach, who teaches it. Uh, and, um, and I see that as an absolute unique uh, feature of us as a school. We're not, we need to tap into it more and more and more. Um, and I think that's the intellectually ethical thing to do that's the socially ethical thing to do. Uh, and um, I think that that just leads to a much more vibrant and dynamic environment instead of just teaching the same old stuff mm. to, to an audience, to a, a student group that has changed radically over the past you know, three, four decades. Um, why should we do that? Why can't we become a bit more fluid? Why can we, we not become a bit more responsive why can't we um, become a bit more interdisciplinary, you know, so it's actually a true partnership with students, you know, lived experience is the thing we need to understand more of. Yeah, thank you for that. And as a student, honestly, that just makes my day to hear like educators and like other academics say like, you know, it's about working with students and understanding their lived experiences and kind of appreciating kind of the differences and, you know, where they come from and things like that. So, yeah, thank you yeah. for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and as a question I like to end on, what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years? Let me think. I mean, uh, you know, pra practically, the two, two, two aspects to the, the answer, really. The first one is very easy. Lots and lots and lots of funding for EDI-related work that, that is... A, um, equivalent to the task, equivalent to the challenge ahead. We can't underfund efforts to meet EDI objectives. We can't do it on the back of goodwill. Um, oh God, just to say again, sorry, I'm going on and on, but just in terms of this, the whole, um, you know, my personal background in campaigning for equality over the past 20 years, I've seen at least two cycles of interest in EDI stuff. Um, almost like economic cycles, um, where something happens in society. Um, the first was the uh, 
murder of Stephen Lawrence when I was much younger. And then uh, society became interested. It, it, you know, EDI and equality came on trend. Uh, but then as soon as other things happened, you know, uh, and attention of society shifted, interest waned and it went down. So the whole cycle uh, and then, you know, in the in the early 2000s, something related to, you know, Labour's, you know, new Labour's multiculturalism, I mean, it peaked then uh, and then it goes away. And I can see where, you know, after George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, we've got an opportunity now to to make change again. But the pattern always dictates that at some point interest will reduce. And what I don't want is for that to happen again, you know. So lots of funding, lots of investment right now to sustain long-term engagement with this stuff. Yeah, I guess I'd like to see higher education decolonized. And I think what that means is what that would call for is a paradigm shift culturally, uh, politically, philosophically. Um, but that's utopia. You know, that's that's something that will never happen. But but I but I think as long as long as there's some sense of what that might look like and we can make that vivid, we can paint that picture and make it as vivid as we can be. We'll always have something to map our progress against. Thank you, Samir. Um, I think that's a really nice way to just bring this interview to a close as well. And I just want to thank you again for joining me on this episode of the podcast. And it's been nice just getting to know you a bit more and also kind of discuss an area that I think not a lot of people kind of take the time to really think about and unpack. And obviously everything that's going on in your um, EDI role as well. But yeah, I've learned so much from this conversation alone. So yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, good to meet you and actually thanks for the fantastic questions really uh, and, and and most of them a lot of them i just hadn't thought about you know before they've never been asked before uh and i think that, you know your questions are a really good example of the way forward is just ask the right questions um and pursue the pursue the answers to them and that's part of the that's part of the issue so just to say thanks for those questions and the chance to talk about it it's really really nice to do that to find out more information access our tools or get in touch visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash psj